Chapter Four of Tolstoy by L. Wynne Stanley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. War and Peace is the longest and most important of Tolstoy's single works. In this book, Tolstoy aimed at giving the picture of a whole epoch, and that one of the most stirring in the history of modern Europe. The real subject is the conflict between the French and the Prussians from 1805 to 1812, the historical events of the novel concluding with the tragedy of the French retreat from Moscow. The enormous scope of the book, the power of its psychology, the vast number of characters crowding its pages, its tremendous vitality, all won for Tolstoy a recognition deservedly worldwide. After reading it, we feel as if we have beheld with our own eyes a terrific and soul-stirring crisis in the history of a great nation, and one of the epoch-making events of the world. And yet the work is truly a novel, and not history in the form of fiction, because we are shown all these events, not in the dry, detached light of the historian, whom Tolstoy dislikes, but through their effect on the minds and souls of the private individuals participating in them. Tolstoy selects a little group of Russian families, whose circumstances involve them in all the main events. We see with their eyes and hear with their ears. We share in their sufferings, until at the end it is difficult to believe that we ourselves have not witnessed Austerlitz and Borodino, the conflagration of Moscow, and the horrors of the French retreat. Yet the total impression is not one of catastrophe the great nation having shed of its heart's blood and sacrificed its noblest yet recuperates and recovers those who are left continue the race and life proceeds as before the whole narrative is grouped around three families the bolkonskys the rostovs and the bezukwa whose relations and interrelations are very skilfully planned the book has three heroes one in each of the families and our attention is first attracted to Prince Andrei Bolkonsky. He is a man of high rank, son of a distinguished general, possessed of aristocratic prejudice, handsome, far more intellectual than his companions. The faults of his character are haughtiness and disdain. Far superior to the majority of human beings, he is only too keenly conscious of the fact. Yet Prince Andrei is capable of strong and deep affections, he dearly loves his father, his sister, and one friend, Pierre Bezuqua. Bezuqua is massive, clumsy, and sensuous, but the keen-sighted Prince André pierces through all his faults and judges his friend justly when he declares that he has a heart of gold. Among the people whom Prince André secretly despises is his own wife, the Princess Lisa. He finds her cowardly and frivolous, and though outwardly respectful, he has little real affection. Prince Andrei enters military service. He becomes aide-de-camp to Kutuzov, and Tolstoy thus has an opportunity of showing us the whole course of the campaign from a really intimate point of view. The great passion of Prince Andrei's life is ambition, the desire for glory, and he considers war as being essentially a means to honour. He is present throughout the Battle of Austerlitz, where his calm, cool courage wins him the highest commendations. But the experience changes all his views of life. In the first place, he realizes how seldom the rewards of courage go to the really deserving. During the engagement at the ends, the honours of the day really rest with an obscure artillery officer named Tushin, 
who keeps his battery firing upon the French, and at the critical moment covers the Russian retreat. Tushin's gunners are almost annihilated, but, with the most heroic courage, the battery stick to their task, and the army is saved. Tushin himself is a modest and unassuming man, and his superiors are so confused that they not only fail to recognize his achievement, but are about to reprimand him severely for losing some of his guns. Prince Andrei's indignant protest that this man has saved the army spares Tushin the reprimand, but his superiors are too hopelessly bewildered to recognize the truth. The real hero of the day is thus a man who gains nothing, not a single reward or honour, and is only too thankful to escape blame. At Austerlitz, when the Russian army are broken and in flight, Prince Andrei attempts to save the day. He stems the tide of the fugitives, seizes the flag as it falls from the hand of a dying officer, and leads the whole battalion against a French battery. He is shot down with the flag still in his hand. He believes himself fatally wounded, and, as he sinks into unconsciousness, realizes suddenly the emptiness of all he has striven for, and the beauty of that sweet and profound peace which lies at the heart of the world, but which, until that moment of marvellous insight, the insight given by the near approach of death, he had never even seen. He opened his eyes, hoping to see how the struggle between the artilleryman and the Frenchman ended, and anxious to know whether or not the red-headed artillerist was killed, and the cannon saved or captured. But he could see nothing of it. Over him he could see nothing except the sky, the lofty sky, no longer clear, but still immeasurably lofty, and with light grey clouds slowly wandering over it. "'How still, calm and solemn! How entirely different from when I was running!' said Prince Andrei to himself. "'It was not so when we were all running and shouting and fighting. How is it that I never saw before this lofty sky?' and how glad I am that I have learned to know it at last. Yes, all is empty, all is deception, except these infinite heavens. Nothing, nothing at all beside. And even that is nothing but silence and peace. And thank God. Prince Andrei, sinking once more into unconsciousness, recovers to find Napoleon surveying him and calling him un bel mort. When it is discovered that he is alive, Napoleon congratulates him on his magnificent courage, but even the praise of this man, hitherto Prince Andrei's idol, does not move him. He has seen, once and for all, the emptiness of military glory. He recovers from his wound, and, softened and tender, returns to his family, who are mourning him as dead. He finds a son just born to him, and his wife dying in childbirth. Henceforward, Prince Andrei is changed, gentle and tender, but melancholy, and regarding himself as a man whose life is done. Interest returns again when he meets Natasha Rostov, one of the most charming heroines in fiction. Natasha is the very embodiment of joy in life, all poetry, passion, and romance. She enthralls Prince Andrei, he is happy as he has never been, and they are betrothed but the opposition of his family causes the marriage to be postponed. Unfortunately, Natasha has the defects of her qualities. She allows herself to be fascinated, though only momentarily, by a hopelessly inferior man. Prince Andrei, deeply wounded both in his love and in his pride, refuses to forgive. 
the old bitterness against life, the old anger, return once more. He seeks his rival, Kuragin, and, not finding him, re-enters military service. At the Battle of Borodino, Prince Andrei is wounded again, and this time, as it proves, fatally. He lingers for some weeks, and, before his death, fate grants him one last happiness. The Rostovs, in the flight from Moscow, sacrifice their own property to save some Russian wounded among whom, unknown to them, is Prince Andrei, he and Natasha meet again. In all Tolstoy's pages none are more lovely and pathetic than those depicting this union on the edge of the grave. For a time there is hope, the renewal of his heart's joy assisting the wounded man to rally, but it is only for a brief space, and there succeeds the tragic and terrible yet beautiful alienation of death. Prince Andrei is one of the few Tolstoyan heroes who have no physical fear of death, who meet it not with shuddering nausea, but with noble and grave composure. If he clings to life, it is not from any weak fear, but because life means Natasha, poetry, and joy. When the pang of resignation is once over, all is peace. Prince Andrei not only knew that he was going to die, but he also felt that he was dying, that he was already halfway towards death. He experienced a consciousness of alienation from everything earthly, and a strange beatific exaltation of being. Without impatience and without anxiety, he waited for what was before him, that ominous eternal presence, unknown and far away, which had never once ceased throughout all his life to haunt his senses, was now near at hand, and, by reason of that strange exhilaration which he felt, almost comprehensible and palpable. Natasha and his sister grieve for themselves, but they cannot really grieve for him. They both saw how he was sinking, deeper and deeper, slowly and peacefully away from them, and they both knew that this was inevitable, and that it was well. He was shrived and partook of the sacrament. All came to bid him farewell. When his little son was brought, he kissed him and turned away, not because his heart was sore and filled with pity, but simply because this was all that was required of him. In this lofty and beautiful isolation, the hero passes away. Prince Andrei has something in him of Byronism. There is the Byronic ideal in his aristocratic disdain, his mental solitude, his melancholy. He is Byronic also in his courage, his love of glory and his disillusionment with glory, but no mere Byronist could ever have drawn the portrait. The marvellous thing in Tolstoy's art is that he so plainly reveals the change and development of human character. We never feel that his people are static and finished. Before our very eyes Prince Andrei changes from Byronic pride to sweetness and tenderness. A bitter disillusion brings him back to pride, but once more the depths of the man's nature are stirred and his fundamental sweetness is revealed. Many times in his epic novel Tolstoy makes us feel the bitter cost of war, but never more than in the death of this, the noblest of his heroes, on the threshold of happiness and love. Pierre Bezuquois, the second hero, is a wholly different type. He is much more Russian and national than Prince Andrei. The two are so unlike that the friendship between them strikes us with the same surprise as it would in real life. Pierre is clumsy and awkward, and not sufficiently strong-willed. He is continually led away to do things he does not desire, 
His chief fault is sensuality, and this is the rock on which he all but wrecks his life. It leads him into marriage with a woman whom he desires but does not love, the beautiful, profligate Elena. The analysis of his motives is wrought with a terrible sombre power which anticipates the Kreutzer Sonata. Pierre, in the toils of his own sensuality, is, on our first acquaintance with him, a most unattractive character, and we wonder why Tolstoy has allowed him a position so prominent, just as we wonder why the fastidious Prince Andrei can have selected him as a friend. But by degrees we realise his true nature. He has indeed a heart of gold, and little by little his goodness and kindness and simplicity shake his character free from its coarsest faults. He has a genius for sympathy, and he appears to understand all those who surround him better than they understand themselves. The real love of his life is Natasha Rostov, but he does his best, most unselfishly, to reconcile her to Prince Andrei. In a sense, he deserves her the better of the two, for even when her betrothed turns against her, Pierre still loves and appreciates, and his devotion helps her through the darkest hours of her life. It is only fitting that, in the end, Natasha should make him happy. Like Prince Andrei, Pierre finds his moral regeneration in war, but in a different way. He does not enter active service, nor is he wounded, but he views other aspects of the great tragedy. He is present at the burning of Moscow. He is captured by the French, and taken as prisoner on their terrible retreat. It is the heroism of the common man, the beauty and nobility of suffering finely born, which redeem Pierre from the depression which has darkened his mind, and which teach him the true meaning of life. He is especially influenced by one man, the peasant soldier Platon Karatayev, one of Tolstoy's greatest creations. Platon is not clever nor handsome, his whole life has been privation, but he is love itself, kind and sweet to all men. Most tragic is his fate. The French shoot those of the Russian prisoners who cannot keep up with the march, and Pierre, seeing his friend failing, cannot endure the thought of what must happen, and keeps away. One morning he sees Platon, not attempting to walk, but sitting beneath a tree with a calm and radiantly happy expression. He gives a beseeching glance to Pierre, but Pierre turns his back and walks off. Shortly afterwards there is heard the sound of a gunshot. Two French soldiers pass with guilty faces, and there is the melancholy howling of Karatayev's dog. Platon's fate is one of the means Tolstoy uses to drive home his lesson of the immense futility of war. It is to the last degree abominable that this most loving and beautiful nature, wholly guiltless, should be murdered in cold blood. Even a dog has the sense to lament such a deed. But the moral of this wonderful nature is not lost upon Pierre. He finds in it the meaning of life, the clue which he has all along been seeking. As Pierre's sufferings increase, so does his heart grow lighter. He learns the joy of endurance, and the pleasure even of anguish, and all things are less grievous than he would have thought. Of all that which he afterwards called sufferings, but which at the time he scarcely felt, the worst was from his bare, bruised, scurvy-scarred feet. The horse-flesh was palatable and nourishing. The saltpetre odour of the gunpowder, which they used instead of salt, was even pleasant the vermin which fed upon him warmed his body. 
the one thing hard at that time was the state of his feet on the second day of the retreat pierre examining his sores by the fire felt that it was impossible to take another step on them but when all got up he went along treading gingerly and afterwards when he was warmed to it he walked without pain though when evening came it was more than ever terrible to look at his feet but he did not look at them and turned his thoughts to other things he saw and heard not how the prisoners who straggled were shot down although more than a hundred had perished in this way the more trying his position the more appalling the future the more joyful and consoling were the thoughts recollections and visions which came to him tolstoy's account of this terrible retreat is homeric in its tragic nobility homeric too is the spirit of the russian army they are short of food short of clothes sleeping in the snow at twenty degrees below zero they melt away to half their numbers yet they grow ever happier and happier more and more cheerful for all the poor-spirited the weak and cowardly succumb and only the heroes remain in his previous life pierre had been miserable disenchanted and disillusioned but he emerges from this hell of suffering a man finally happy and tolstoy makes us see that it could not be otherwise his hero has learnt forever the tremendous capacities of the human soul of tolstoy's two heroines the princess maria is the nobler type she is what he imagined his mother to have been and to this no doubt a large part of her fascination may be traced in her the author has drawn a woman exceedingly plain not particularly clever without accomplishments and melancholy by temperament yet by sheer spiritual beauty she compels admiration affection even passionate love her physical appearance on which tolstoy dwells gives the clue to her nature she treads heavily and blushes unbecomingly in patches this heavy tread shows us her awkwardness and self-distrust and the blushing her almost painful modesty but she is one of those who have life's secret the gift of love she idolizes her brother she loves and admires her little selfish sister-in-law the princess lisa she bears year in and year out with the exasperating and even cruel tyrannies of her father and loves him dearly to the end she cherishes her nephew ultimately though slowly she wins her reward for all this patient sweetness her brother has always understood her at her full value her father dies acknowledging her as his good angel and we are not surprised when nikolai rostov cold to more beautiful and more attractive women turns and gives her his love and yet the portrait is not sentimentalized or made incredibly virtuous the princess maria does not find self-abnegation easy she longs for a home and happiness she is jealous of natasha because natasha is young and beautiful and has achieved the poetry of love to the end notwithstanding her deep affections she finds it a little hard to comprehend others tolstoy's second heroine natasha rostov is for pure fascination the most enthralling character in the book tolstoy seems to have drawn her from an actual person his sister-in-law and she has all the reality of a minute portrait natasha is beautiful or it would be more correct to say has the promise of beauty she has also a lovely voice but her most remarkable gift is her power of winning love 
From her first introduction she is the idolized of all. She and her younger brother, Petya, are her mother's favorite children. Natasha is the adored of her brothers and her father, and almost every man who visits the house falls in love with her. Tolstoy makes us understand why. Natasha is herself prepared to see all that is delightful and all that is good in others. She is highly vitalized, she has strong affections and an intense joy in life. Wherever Natasha is, things move. It is she who is always ready to suggest games and amusements. It is she who perceives poetry and romance where others cannot or only in much less degree. Morning in the forest, a moonlight night in spring, sledging over the snow, music, all are to her enrapturing things. That magical period of youth, that period of half-childhood, half-adolescence, when the world is suffused by the light that never was on sea or land, has nowhere been more beautifully depicted than in her. It is this romantic charm which so powerfully attracts the somewhat cold but poetic nature of Prince Andrei. In the midst of the gloomy tragedies of bloodshed and battle, Natasha Rostov shines like an incarnation of springtime the very joy of life in a human form. The most beautiful passage in the whole novel is probably that which describes Prince Andrei's first meeting with her. He is in a mood of some sadness, and feels, after all his experiences, old beyond his years. He drives to the Rostovs, and perceives a number of young girls running among the trees. In front of the others ran a very slender, indeed a strangely slender maiden, with dark hair and dark eyes, in a yellow chintz dress, with a white handkerchief round her head, the locks emerging from it in ringlets. It is Natasha, and that same night Prince Andrei hears her conversing with her cousin Sonya at the window above his own. The night was cool and calmly beautiful. In front of the window was a row of clipped trees, dark on one side and silver-bright on the other. Farther away, beyond the trees, was a roof glittering with dew. Farther to the right, a tall tree with wide-spreading branches showed a brilliant white bowl and limbs, and directly above it the moon, almost at her full, shone in the bright, nearly starless spring night. Prince Andrei leaned his elbows on the window-sill, and fixed his eyes on that sky. He hears Sonya and Natasha sing a duet. He hears Sonya try to persuade her cousin to sleep and Natasha's protest. Sonya, Sonya, how can you go to sleep? Just see how lovely it is, how lovely. Come, wake up. Sonya, she said again, with tears in her voice, come now, such a lovely, lovely night was never seen. Prince Andrei meets her again at a ball in St. Petersburg where her childlike happiness brings a breath of pure air into the artificial atmosphere. Natasha is so completely unaffected that, in the very midst of affectations, she keeps her unspoiled romance. Prince Andrei proposes for her hand, but the Rostovs' family affairs are in confusion, and Prince Andrei's father insists on a year's delay. For that space of time he goes abroad. Prince Andrei does not find the time of delay unreasonably long, and cannot understand that Natasha should do so, but the girl suffers the dangers of her inexperience. Prince Andrei has roused her to a full consciousness of womanhood, and her sensuous and passionate nature cannot endure the blank of his absence. Also, since she is extremely sensitive, 
she is grieved by the cold attitude his family persistently maintain. She meets Anatole Kuragin, a man exceedingly handsome but unscrupulous, who at once makes violent love to her. She writes a letter to Prince Andrei breaking off their engagement, and consents to elope with Kuragin, this plan being discovered and frustrated by her family. Natasha wakens from her brief madness, realizes how badly she has behaved to her betrothed, and, in her remorse and shame, attempts suicide. Prince Andrei, returning, learns the whole story. He is stung to the quick in his haughty pride. His spiritual nature makes him totally unable to understand the temptation, and he cannot forgive. It is Natasha's innate generosity which gives them, however, their last chance of reconciliation. The Rostovs are carting their family property away from Moscow, which is threatened by the French, but there are not sufficient horses to transport the Russian wounded, and Natasha, keenly opposing her mother, demands that the family property shall be sacrificed and the wounded rescued instead. The Rostovs discover Prince Andrei's presence and forbid Natasha to see him, but her own daring takes her to his side, and there follows the most simple, but touching of reconciliations. Natasha becomes his nurse, and proves the depth of her nature by her skill and tenderness. But the brief time of joy is soon over. Prince Andrei's sufferings are agonizing, and he passes away. Natasha feels bereavement with the same intensity as everything else. She herself seems to sink out of the world thin and pale and visibly wasting away, she sits for hours in silence, gazing at the place where Prince Andrei has lain. Her family have lost all hope of saving her life, but tragic news arrives. The younger brother, Petya, has been killed in battle, and the mother is mad with grief. She screams for her beloved Natasha, who is the only person who can comfort her, and, in straining every nerve to save her mother's reason, the girl herself is restored to life. She lives again by virtue of those profound and passionate affections which have almost destroyed her. She is so greatly changed, however, that when Pierre meets her again he does not know her, he cannot recognize in her thin, pale and stern face the Natasha of adorable and abounding life. Yet the moment he shows that he loves her, the old Natasha, with a radiant joy, flashes back into his view and she is willing, almost at once, to become Pierre's affianced. To the Princess Maria, with a nature much less emotional but infinitely more constant, Natasha is a continual marvel, and though she is glad of her friend's happiness, the Princess grieves at the inconstancy to her brother. The whole portrait is wonderful in its realism, glowing with vitality and with charm, and, just as in the case of the men, Natasha deepens and changes before our very eyes. But few readers will be inclined, however, to appreciate Tolstoy's final picture of her. He shows us Natasha as Pierre's wife and the mother of four children. She is loving but exacting, very jealous, almost parsimonious in her care for her children. She has become untidy in her personal appearance, and the old poetic charm only in the rarest moments returns. Natasha, in fact, seems to show us the limitations in Tolstoy's patriarchal view of woman. He regards her not really as an individual, an end in herself, but as a means towards the race, and the individual loss is nothing to regret. 
he seems to realize and rejoice in the shock he gives us when he tells us of natasha the generous become parsimonious of natasha the sylph tearing round in a dirty morning wrapper but we are inclined to resent the admiration accorded to this second natasha who limits her sympathies to such a narrow circle and who has become a maternal egoist of the most colossal type tolstoy himself found as we have seen in his relations with his wife that the maternal egoist is not quite the finest ideal of humanity it is impossible to study in any detail the crowded canvas of war and peace but the minor characters are often among the best drawn and the most attractive the whole rostov group are delightfully depicted petya rostov the dear boy who is killed has almost the same charm as natasha he has intense affections is full of amusing boyish interests and possesses a lofty ideal of patriotism he likes to think himself a hero and really is one when only sixteen he insists on joining the army his brother's friends try to protect him and to keep him out of danger but his gallantry leads him into every peril and he is killed quite uselessly and casually while exposing himself in a dangerous engagement it is one more example of the immense futility of war nikolai rostov tolstoy's third hero is more commonplace than pierre and prince andrei but he gives tolstoy a splendid opportunity for depicting the psychology of war we are shown all his emotions from the day when he first joins is alternately elated with a feeling of heroism and depressed by the conviction that he is a coward to the time when as a seasoned veteran he can hardly recall his old excitement and his old dread the only trace his former fear has left in his mind shows itself in his compassion for the younger officers whose mental sufferings he so fully understands nikolai rostov has always a certain humility of character he is very ready to reverence others and is attracted to the princess maria by her great spiritual superiority to himself the artillery officer tushin to whom we have already alluded is evidently tolstoy's type of a true russian hero he is simplicity and modesty itself his magnificent courage is not in the least sanguinary but is accompanied by a heart as tender as a woman's when he is returning after his terrific day he is still kind enough to help the wounded nikolai rostov on to the blood-bespattered gun carriage nor does tushin stand alone continually in war and peace as in so many other works tolstoy makes us feel the enormous value of man as man with the really eminent we cannot but feel that he is less successful one curious feature of the book is its almost eastern fatalism tolstoy will allow practically nothing to the will of man as an individual all the great events of the book are due to the power of an unknown destiny urging men on to deeds which are even to themselves unexpected and surprising while the men who think that they are directing all are really as helplessly incapable of any true control as a fly revolving upon a cartwheel tolstoy is especially embittered towards napoleon he does not blame him like byron because his greatness was antithetically mixed with so much of meanness he does not blame him like shelley because possessing in his genius a unique opportunity for good he chose to divert that genius to his own self-aggrandizement 
Tolstoy goes much further. He is so excessively angry that he altogether denies Napoleon's genius. He will not acknowledge him to have any talent except of the most trifling kind. To him Napoleon is a mean-souled, small-minded man, contemptible in everything, colossal in his vanity, but great in nothing besides. And when the reader asks in amazement how Napoleon won his tremendous victories, how he gained the unparalleled devotion of his army, Tolstoy answers contemptuously that the victories were due mainly to destiny, to the unknown ruler of the world who so ordained, and that the devotion of the army was mere hypnotism. Nor is it only from Napoleon that he endeavours to strip the borrowed plumes. In several amusing studies Napoleon's great soldier-marshals are revealed as vain, childish, and even absurd, proud of their uniforms and almost infantile in their love of decorations. But, it must be confessed, Tolstoy is impartial in his dislike of the eminent. He is almost as hard on the Russian generals as on the French. The one man whom he praises, Kutuzov, is the man whom the Russians themselves failed to appreciate and Tolstoy admires him for the somewhat curious reason that he also was a fatalist, that he believed no general could do much, and was always, with Fabian tactics, waiting upon the event. End of chapter 4